You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So up to this point in the book of Judges, we've been working towards the very last verse, the last chapter, which says that the people did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king in Israel. That is, apart from God's chosen leader, we're, we're, we're lost. We're, we're going to wander into awful, terrible things. Apart from godly leadership to guide and direct us, we're lost. We'll, we'll, we'll destroy ourselves and the people around us. But but we believe that God actually means not to leave us in that wandering, doing whatever is right in our own eyes, but instead sends us godly direction through his word made flesh, that is Jesus Christ. And so what we find here in the book of Judges is what we would call like a, a seed of the gospel that becomes fully fruitful and in bloom in the New Testament. And we find a pattern of behavior that we've discovered over the last couple of weeks where people respond to God's blessing by doing whatever they want. So if you want, I encourage you to read through the book of Joshua, the book preceding the book of Judges, which is a generation of people receiving God's deliverance. They've been led out of captivity and oppression and bondage in Egypt and been given a land where they experience God's promise. But what do people, when they're blessed by God, do? Whatever's right in their own eyes. And so I want you to mark your spot there in Judges chapter 3. I'm going to read to you Deuteronomy chapter 7, the first five verses, and then we'll immediately jump in there. Because the other thing I want to to do for you is to begin to connect the dots of the Old Testament. So so if you're ever in a reading plan, I know some of you are right now, um, you're walking through some of the the first five books of the Bible, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Man, every good Bible reading plan hits hits some speed bumps in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But what I would say, this might transform your understanding of the Bible because the experience of Joshua and Judges, the people receiving God's promise and responding in rebellion, is connected directly to those promises predicted. So beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 7, I'm going to read the first five verses, and then we're going to flip over to Judges and read the entirety of chapter 3. Listen now for God's covenant promise and then people's responding to him. Verse 1 of Deuteronomy 7, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly, but thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars, and chop down their asherim, and burn their carved images with fire. Flip over with me to Judges chapter 3. We're going to read the whole chapter, and brace yourselves. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. 
It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war. To teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations. The five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon. From Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel, to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served other gods. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Arishathame, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Arishathame, Cushan Rishathame, eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathame, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathame. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in the cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came 
And when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord, dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. And the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. This is God's word. No, really. As a person who uh, encourages regularly and hopefully uh, influences regularly men, I want to disciple godly men, raise up disciple-making men. And one of the ways that I often encourage men to grow in maturity, taking responsibility for their own lives, their own families and the communities in which they live, I try as best I can to raise the bar, right? As Paul would say, when I thought like a child, you know, that was in the past, but now I've thrown off childish things. And so as I try to challenge a, don't, don't hear me wrong on this, a group of people who would call themselves men who are entertained largely by comic books and cartoons, the average or median age of a video game player is no longer a child, it's a man in his 30s. And so I regularly encourage these men to grow and show maturity, especially in the area of humor. And I encourage them and push them as far away from what I would classify as bathroom humor as possible. And today I get to eat my words. Now, to be fair, I know some of you, you're like, see? Bathroom jokes, right there, right? Just be clear, it rarely shows up in the Bible. I mean rarely, okay? So yes, enjoy this one, enjoy today. Soak it in. And then grow up. (laughs) But what we have here is this, in the middle of this cycle of God's people rebelling against him, a a strangely graphic and I would encourage intentionally humorous story. A story that you're meant to hear the details and go, what? Really? And like I told you for the rest of the book, this is one among many times in the book of Judges you'll stop and go, why is this in here? Why is this book even in here? But what I read to you in chapter 3 are the first three of the 12 main judges we'll get introduced to in the book of Judges. And we're introduced to consider something powerful that we desperately need a hero, a deliverer. We settle for less than what we actually need. And yet God is our hero. And in him we find, did you catch that word there? 
rest. And the last words there, did you catch? Verse 31 of that chapter, the third Shamgar of these judges, what happened? God raised up another leader after Othniel and after Ehud, and what happened? He saved his people. So the first and most important thing I want you to see here before we dig into the details, the nitty-gritty details of this story is the overarching theme here is that we need a hero. And, and over and over and over again, you'll see this, but whether it's Othniel, Ehud, or Shamgar, we fall woefully short. The hero of this story, the hero of this book, isn't any one of those three people. It's God. It's God who raises them up. It's God who hears the cries of his people and sends someone to save them. So let's begin to walk through this. This repetition begun here. And I hope for the last few weeks that I've been trying to introduce this text and the cycle we're about to walk into. I've been trying to prepare you, right? Prepare you that God works in messy situations. Here we go. So the very first passage, did you catch that? I wanted you to connect the dots of the the introduction of those first six verses here in Judges to the commands and the promises laid out for them in Deuteronomy. Now, hopefully that also kind of makes, as you're reading through the Bible, your time a little less disorienting, right? You'd be walking through and go, what's this talking about? Why is this here? And you go, oh, this this is meant to set the stage for us to anticipate God fulfilling his promise. And then let us begin to expect what God what God's people are going to do in response. And so you heard literally, very clearly, that, that list of peoples that they're going to live among, and they're meant to destroy their gods and follow after God. And certainly one of the ways they were supposed to do that is to keep from intermarrying with them. Because, as Deuteronomy told us, they were going to lead people from worshiping and trusting God into trusting these other gods. Gods in Canaan that would have sacrificed children, that would have engaged in temple prostitution. Their way of worshiping their God was by engaging in the most visceral and and entertaining the most base instincts they had. And then you saw what they did. Verse 6, they gave their daughters away and then they began to marry the daughters of those people because some of you in this room, grandparents, know this. Once grandchildren come along, all your convictions are out the window. Like, all, all of your sternness and strictness and all the rules and discipline, all of a sudden your grandchild's there and you're like, whatever. It's, yeah, yeah. But, but do, do you see this? Do you see, do you see what happens? There's something that takes place. The family becomes transformed. And so the model of God's covenant people living out faithfulness. Remember that? We saw that in Deuteronomy 6, 7, and 8. This picture that, that ultimately the way that covenant promises were passed on to children was that they were modeled. Right? And I, I encourage you parents, we're never called to give the talk about sexuality, about, about faith, about the character and nature of God. But instead, we're meant to model a thousand talks when as we saw in, in the book of Deuteronomy, when, when we wake up, when we go to bed, when we eat, when we're along the way, every single moment of every single day, we're reminded of God's faithfulness to us. And what do they do? Verse 7 tells us, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Now, I want to walk you through some powerful examples of unfaithfulness and rebellion in this text and then begin to invite you to consider the ways in which those same kinds of 
trusting and hoping in lesser things are visible even in our own lives. And the first one we see there is they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now remember I told you the, the crux of this entire book is namely that in the very last verse they, they, people just do whatever they want. And that's important for us to remember because what this book will begin to make a case for is that apart from a godly king, if God doesn't send, send us a, his chosen king, we're lost. And we don't like this. We don't like thinking that God is the one we need. We, we like self-sufficiency. And so we don't like to be told what to do. And by we, I mean I don't like to be told what to do. But that is, quite literally, the state of affairs in the book of Judges. We do then whatever is right according to us. And you know this. You have the ability to justify anything. You have the ability to make it seem like what you did was, as I like to t- say it, a good idea at the time. But look what he says is the rebellion and the evidence of this. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Warn you here, forgetfulness can be sin. Forgetfulness can be rebellion against God. Let me take a little detour here to to begin to kind of expose one of the idols of the culture, right? We like to do whatever we want. That's what these people like to do. And so therefore, one of the things we trust in and we genuinely worship is our own will. We worship it. We worship our own ideas, right? And so if you've ever, here's the thing, you can always see it in someone else, you rarely see it in yourself, but you know a person who's made a series of terrible decisions, right, that have got them in trouble. And what do they think is the solution? Another decision, right? Like, we, we try to quote uh, Alcoholics Anonymous whenever we can in discipleship, which is this, this powerful quote, your best ideas are what got you here. And so we worship the will. Even, in, even when our best ideas have made a mess, we still, like, we, don't we? We're like, okay, here's what I'll do. I've got a new idea. And a helpful, loving person will come along and say, hey, your idea privileges have been suspended, right? Your decision-making privileges are suspended. You are currently grounded from ideas and decisions because that's what's gotten you here. And we worship the will. Let me show you one of the evidences that we worship the will. I'll give you two. One of them is that when we apologize, we only feel guilt for things that we believe we've willed to do. One of the most common phrases you'll hear in a, and I want to, this is a terrible apology. When you say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. Do you hear the idolatry under that? I'm only responsible for my best ideas. I'm only responsible for things that I've willed into being. And therefore, I am justified because I didn't mean to do it. And we have a whole category of crime, right? That's the difference between murder and manslaughter. That is intent. We've enshrined it because if you mean to do it, it's really bad. Even though the consequences may be identical, if you meant it, it's worse. But don't miss, that, that's a worship of the will. It's the worship of our own, I'll say here, kingship. That's an evidence that we really do believe that we are right in our own minds. And we do whatever we believe is right in our own minds. But one of the second ways that false apology for doing something wrong is evidence of our worship and idolatry of the will, our own freedom and independence, is when we apologize and say, I'm sorry, I forgot. I forgot. 
Again, as if to say, since I wasn't thinking of it consciously, I can't be held responsible for it. I forgot. But you know this doesn't work, right? You know there's a point where even that, that logic falls over, it eats itself, right? Try that on a more drastic kind of thing, right? Tell a judge and jury that in a capital case. Seems you have murdered these people. I'm sorry, I forgot. All the way down to the really shallow ones, right? There's something like, hey, it's my birthday. I'm sorry, I forgot. It's our anniversary, I, right? And so there's a sense in which we feel justified if we're not willing it, but, but even that falls apart, right? Like today, my, my wife was like, hey, where are the girls? Did you, did you bring them home from the church building? I'm sorry, I forgot. You get it? The way I talk about this is that there are no excuses, only priorities. There are no excuses, only priorities. And sometimes they're good, right? If you, someone was like, hey, I can't make it, you know, my mom's in the hospital, right? That's not an excuse, that's a priority. And it's a good one, right? I can't make it, my mom's in the hospital. And we would go, man, you're right. That is a priority. It explains your actions. Go for it. On the other hand, if I were to say, like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sorry I couldn't make it. I was washing my hair. Well, you'd be like, That's, is, is that, does that make this better? Does that make, does that make your absence? Because, but you notice what I've said. I've said there's a value in one over the other. And one of the ways, this is painful, one of the ways that our values and what we worship is visible is what we remember and what we forget. And so these people forgot. They forgot the Lord. And they started trusting in lesser things. Now on one hand, I, I want, this is meant to be kind of, hey, be careful when you find yourself saying, I'm sorry, I forgot, right? Just recognize what you're communicating to that person is what you value. Your values are visible at that point. They're obvious to everyone but you, right? Again, like, hey, you know, why didn't, why didn't, why didn't you come see me? I'm, I forgot, right? They're just... You kind of like, you're saying this isn't important. And notice what they're saying here. They're saying, the Lord and what he's done for us isn't ultimate to me. I can save myself. I can do it on my own. I don't need him. I don't need to remember him. And then what does it say, the, the result of forgetting him? They serve the Baals and Ashtaroth. They worship lesser gods. They trust in lesser things. And it starts by what? forgetfulness by not prioritizing remembering it this is why we we think the most important things we can do on a regular basis even if you're in this room and you would call yourself a believer one of the best things we can do on a weekly basis is every time we see one another we remind one another we remind like hey no seriously you're prone to forget you're prone to trust in lesser things i don't know about you whenever awesome things happen i just always assume it's because of me Right, like, I, I maybe maybe you don't do this. Whenever cool things happen, I just assume like I'm awesome. Like, hey, that must be great. Rather than remember, oh, I deserve the anger of the Lord. I deserve punishment. I deserve hell. I deserve just and due punishment for rebelling against a perfect and holy God. Anything good that happens to me must be a gift. 
Don't forget. But then we see something amazing for the rest of the chapter, right? God makes and orders history. God is Lord over history. This is pretty profound because we're typically fairly accustomed to what I would say is a pretty godless or secularized and what I would describe as a non-revelatory view of history. That is, there's nothing like ultimate or supernatural to be revealed in history, but instead there's just like a, a course of action, a course of nature, if you will. And notice here, history is not some tame natural process that's unfolding, but it's like the blazing result of God's work. And this is encouraging because if you're wondering, am I here on purpose? Is this an accident? Why am I here? I want to encourage you. This is not an accident. This ends well. God is real and he's doing something for us. And so you see the unfolding of the next three stories, right? Of Othniel, of Ehud, and of Shamgar. And we could say, well, here, this caused this and this caused this. But what, what we're meant to see is, oh, God is the hero and God is doing something. So look at the response of those people. The anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and then he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. Now, there's a wordplay going on here. It's literally saying, like, Cushan, which, and then that word Rishathaim is, means double wickedness. So this is one thing that oppressed people can do, right? You may not be able to overthrow the king, but you can make fun of him. And so the, it kind of rhymes with, uh, with this picture of like the, the two rivers. And so there's kind of this Kushan Rishathaim, the, the, the double wicked and the double rivers. And you say, well, why is that important? I don't know if you notice, I had to pronounce it and repronounce it four times. As if to say, all right, there was this other, there was this other king in Mesopotamia, and this is what he was doing. Uh, th- this, was, this is what these people were doing. This is what they were like. They were doubly wicked. And then God's people were handed over to them. Now, this is amazing for us because this is, again, this is a way to kind of crack open our expectations of how God works. It is actually God's mercy to loosen our grip on idols. Look what happened. They they forgot the Lord, and then they started trusting in more immediate things. Right? You know what that's like. You're like, the Lord's going to deliver me. And you're like, but I still should, I better do something. Right? Like, oh, yeah, the Lord, I hear you, Jonathan, the Lord is good, but I got to do that this week. All the important things happening this week, all the bills getting paid, all the, all the accomplishments, all the achievements, all the tasks, they're me. I got to do them. I hear what you're saying. The Lord is doing everything, but, but really, I, I got a lot of work to do. And what do we do? We begin to trust in the lesser thing, in the more immediate thing. It's the, it's the more visible thing. It's the more readily accessible thing. And so they begin to trust in Baal and Ashtaroth. Well, maybe, maybe these things are what's causing, it, causing good things to happen. Maybe God isn't really the source of blessing and grace. Maybe there's something else. And then it says, then they, they were thrown into, sold into the hand of the king of double wickedness. Now that's interesting because from the outside looking in, we can see this and go, yeah, God's doing this and he's, he's, he's turning them over to the consequences of their actions. But here's, here's the hard part. This is very difficult, if not impossible, to see when you're in it. He gives them over to their idols so that they'll begin to see how deeply unsatisfying they really are. And it's actually his kindness. It's his mercy to allow those things to fail 
in order to loosen our grip on them. Here's what I would encourage you as many times as I can in this book. Hopelessness is God's gift. Hopelessness is always the result in hoping in things lesser than Jesus. And so I know some of you in this room, like you're you're walking in here and, and you have a massive weight of rejection, failure, and hopelessness that you're carrying around everywhere you go. And that's why Jesus comes along in the Gospels and says things like, look, follow me, follow me. Look, especially if you are weary, especially if you are heavy laden, come follow me. I'll carry that for you. I can carry the weight of all your hopes and dreams. And it's actually God's mercy to allow us to experience that hopelessness in lesser things. So let me encourage you. This, this isn't meant to say like, oh yeah, you know, suck it up. You're going to be fine. That, that isn't the case at all. In fact, the thing that you're going through right now, I'm certain is awful. I'm certain it seems bleak. I'm certain. I, I know I, I've, I've been there to some extent, but I know the, the, the level of hopelessness that you currently are feeling, the questions you have. Is, is anything good going to happen of my life? Is there any reason that I'm here? I want to encourage you. It might be that your sense of hopelessness is a result of you trusting and hoping in lesser things. It's possible that that hopelessness you now feel is a preparation for you to experience true contentment, true peace, true love, true acceptance, true adoption by God our Father through Jesus Christ. The way I talk about it is this, like, it's God's mercy to, to, to expose our unfaithfulness. You saw this in the last chapter, right? That, that biblical unfaithfulness and rebellion throughout the Old Testament is always referred to as adultery. And I, 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 I share this with, with some people, like, look, man, if my wife runs after another guy, what will my love for my wife look like in that moment? Like, best case scenario, what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run him down. I'm going to be like, this, guy is a, this guy's a joke. Baby, what are you going after this guy for? He's a joke. He's, he's obviously stupid. And this, he's obviously lesser than me and all these things. Right? Like, I love her. And so therefore, I'd be like, look, this guy's worthless. And I want you to feel how worthless this guy is. I hope this, I, like, right, it would be stupid for me. Like, I just hope you guys have a great relationship, right? I hope you just find that really satisfying and fulfilling. But the picture of the Old Testament God as a jealous God who, who cares for and protects what he possesses demands that he would say, don't do it. It won't work. Worst case scenario, frankly, that guy's dead. And you're going to look for a pastor because your pastor's in jail. And I won't even feel bad about it. It's actually love. It's love that I would not want her to be satisfied in someone else. And so it's actually God's mercy to loosen our grip on the things we've run from him to cling to. But don't miss, they cry out to God. You hear that, that language of crying out, but, but we find something really interesting. This word elsewhere in the Old Testament, but when the people of Israel, verse 9, cried out, God responded. But, but notice, they, you've already, already read you the whole of the chapter, right? You're like, oh, cool, they repented. Evidently not, because in what happens in verse 12? The people of Israel did what? Again, what was evil. So, before we move on to the great story of Ehud, desperation is not the same of repentance, but it can be the fertile soil of repentance. I want to encourage you, some of you are deeply desperate because things are awful, 
And, and that, that might be a great place that the Lord's coming to, to offer mercy and care to you. But it's possible to be really desperate, to feel deep distress, and not feel any sort of guilt, not feel any sort of remorse over your sin. Ask yourself this. What's the story? Like, what's your story? What's the story of God's grace in your life? And many people was at one time I was like, I was on my deathbed, right? Like, and, and God delivered me from sickness. I know for some of you, like, I survived an accident or I survived this thing. And, and I'm gonna be like, praise God, amen. God, God delivered you from that distress. But, but don't miss this. The distress was only meant to appetize you for trusting in him. The deeper deliverance is not found in this life. It's found on the other side of the grave. And you can be delivered from the worst sickness and still not be remorseful over sin. One of the most painful experiences of my entire life. I was helping uh, as a pastor of an established church and uh, driving a man to cancer treatment. Uh, his lymphoma had metastasized. I'm, I, I'm not a doctor. I mess up the words all the time. It had gone metastatic. It had gone other places, right? It was really bad. Drove him to these treatments, and miraculously, like, he came through it. I remember I pulled up to my house in his car, his, his pickup, and I'm about to get out. And I said, man, I just, hey, what do you feel like the Lord's shown you in this? Because, right, this is a man who's experienced deliverance. I said, what do you feel like the Lord's shown you in this? And, and I, 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 this was where a good pastor would have known what to say. I went silent. He said, well, you know, I've just found that, uh, you know, the Lord helps those who help themselves. You know, I've worked really hard and committed to, you know, to a diet and, and committed to these treatments. And, and, you know, I've really found it to be true. The Lord helps those who help themselves. Side note, that is the most anti-gospel thing ever. If you could help yourself, you wouldn't need Jesus. And again, I'm, I'm sure there's a pastor out there who would know what to say in that moment. I just, I was like, okay, walked inside. And a decade later, I'm still sitting there going like, I don't know. I don't know, man. And I saw the painful reality that, like, even though these people had cried out to God, evidently it was half-hearted. It was a genuine cry of despair. They were in distress. They were in pain. But evidently their deepest pain wasn't that they had sinned and rebelled against a faithful and loving God. And it's possible to feel really, really bad about everything but sin. Notice, the good news is, God saves on the basis of his grace, not on the quality of the repentance. This is good, because they, they offer some half-hearted, right, just kind of, kind of whimsical repentance, like we feel really bad about this, and, and what happens? God delivers them anyway. Why? Because w this is amazing. Like, I know some of you are like, did I repent enough? Have I trusted the right way? Have I said the right thing? And Friend, that's just superstition. It's, it's, it, look, it is, it is not your faith, let's say, that delivers you. It is the object of your faith that delivers you. Namely, Ephesians will tell us that it is by grace through faith. What is the object of faith in that? Is it, I repented really well. I had a high-quality repentance, confessed all my sin, right? And therefore, God loves me. No, my faith is that he is gracious. My only hope my only hope is that even my half-hearted, poor attempts at repentance are looking at the right object. And so this is powerful for us. No, the pattern is, you're going to hear me say this a lot over and over and over again, okay? Like this, they're like, and, they, and, they, and God saved them. And what did he give them? 40 years. 
Now Ehud, who was super awesome, which you could obviously tell why, got them, in verse 30, a rest of 80 years. All right, let's talk about Ehud. You ready? Here we go. Now, I didn't mean to throw guys under the bus earlier who usually make bathroom humor. I have heard many times women criticize men, careful, don't throw them under the bus, and, and women will say things like, well, they just, men are just overly fascinated with bodily fluids and body functions. One time, I got accidentally invited to a baby shower, and a room full of moms told the rest, and let me tell you, loved, loved to tell stories about bodily fluids and body functions, okay? So it's not just a guy thing. Careful. You know I'm right, like, and you're like, yeah, it's just... It's fascinating. Fair enough. But notice what happens here. So they do again what's wrong. And we're left in this weird spot where God raises up Ehud. Now, notice what happened. He had been bringing tribute. Now, this, this word tribute isn't like a tax, but instead, it's like something you're forced to give to the leader. And so for them, probably this tribute would have been whatever they were able to harvest and so as a result, we're meant to see here that evidently this is, again, he's not, he's not fat shaming this guy here, but instead it's this picture of imagine living in a time where food is pretty hard to come by. Imagine a, a time, well, I mean, right, like there was, the, you know, there's no such thing as like refined sugar at this time, right? High fructose corn syrup had not been invented yet, okay? So like this was a new, and some of you are like, I'm really excited that I just, demonize high fructose corn syrup. <laughs> it's not the point. <laughs> what I mean is, like, they didn't have access to the kind of luxurious tastes and treats that we have now, right? Cotton candy was not a thing here. And so for this person to be fat meant that, unlike the rest of the world who had to work very hard to harvest, to build, right? You burn a lot of calories when you work with your hands, for this person to become fat what meant, one, he was a recipient of great tribute, right? He, like, he, 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 had, he had been like living such a life of luxury that he was burning no calories and consuming the most luxurious kinds of foods all the time. And it's part of the story. You're meant to see here that this guy had lit, literally gotten fat off of the pr- oppression of God's people, actually benefited from oppressing God's chosen people. And so Ehud comes along, and it, we find out here he's left-handed. Now, it's interesting. We, we just finished a story about Othniel, who was a, a picture of strength, a picture of might, right? Remember for him from chapter 1, where the, where the king was like, hey, um, you know, I have this daughter. If you'll go capture this, this city, then I will, I will give my daughter, I will give the blessing to marry my daughter if you'll do this. And along comes Othniel, and he's like, I got this, right? Super love story, wins her hand, like wins the city to marry this woman, pretty ma- the Kenite woman, pretty amazing story. So you get this picture of strength, and then you get this picture of something just more peculiar. Now it says left-handed, but most literally it just means that he was hindered from the use of his dominant hand. He was hindered from the use of his dominant hand. It, it's possible that he had some sort of injury on his dominant hand, or he didn't have uh, the use of it or something like that. Now this is, again, the word play is pretty awesome. The word Benjamin, bin Yamin, means son of the right hand. <laughs> so yeah, it's just fun. Like, and, and, and the Lord called the left-handed son of the right hand. Right? This, this is, it is, it is meant to be funny. You're meant to go like, this is crazy. 
Let me tell you a story of how God saved us. So it all started, it was a left-handed son of the right hand. Wait, what? Yeah, not even, not even got it started yet. And then, he, and then he went and approached this fat guy, right? And I love this. There's a, this, is, this is actually a genre of fat villains, right? Like I, you Jabba the Hutt fans, right? Or Penguin, this is, maybe Queen Ursula, right? You get the idea, like, this is a genre, this is a thing. And I want you to know where those genres and those stories come from. They come from this picture, this thing that happened. Goes in, Jabba the Hutt, whatever that is, right? Again, it's, you, I know some of you are like massive Star Wars fans and you're really depressed right now. They're like, are, are you, do, you mean, do you mean that this wasn't original? No, nothing new under the sun. Sneaks in, just like Han Solo. Ha-ha. <laughs> uh, sneaks in, and, and, and the story and the details all of a sudden become important, right? So even now, left-handed people, if you're in the room, I'd have you raise your hand. Like, raise your right hand, but that was just a joke. Yeah, don't do it. They make up about 10% of the population. Now, I know you think your life is really hard, what with scissors and spiral notebooks and computer mouses, okay? Pencil sharpeners, right? But this is really interesting because they would have made up, just like you, for the purpose of this argument here, a peculiar group of people, at least a subdominant group of people, not the majority, the minority of people. And so, this plays in, right? Did you catch that? They Normally, uh, someone who was right-handed would strap on their left thigh a saber or a sword. And so, here's, here's, again, this is where it gets funny. He, he goes in there, and, uh, and then two things happen. He like, it's like a bad horror flick, right? You watch the horror flick, and you're like, don't do it! And, and you can imagine the Israelites telling the story of, of Ehud going in there, and he's like, they, they, he walks in, and they frisk him on the left side because everybody's right-handed, who would expect this? Who would expect anything happening, you know, bad for a king right now uh, that would come from the right thigh of this man, right? That's what you're like, ha ha, what could, you know, what, what, bad could, what bad thing could happen? And then, did you catch that? Apparently, he had won over the king such that he says, I have a secret message for you. I have a word from God. Right, and then what does the king do? Did you catch that? Silence. Nehud came to him, and after he said, I have a message from you, he made everyone leave from his presence in verse 19. Right, again, you're meant to, this is like a horror flick, right? Like, you know, people are getting chopped up around you, and the person's like, what's that noise in there? I'm going to go check. I mean, it's, right? This is where the Israelites would have been telling us. So, so then this is what happened. You won't believe it. Then King Eglon told everyone to leave, but he and Ehud. And Ehud says, I have a message from God for you. I mean, this is, this is classic right here. And he gets up. He reaches with his left hand. All the details come flying. Did you catch this? He gets up. He reaches with his left hand, took the sword from where? His right thigh. And thrust it where? Into the fat belly, right? And then what, the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat even closed over the blade. And he did not pull the sword out of his belly like, ha! And then it's like he stepped back and just watched him squirm and die. And then it throws in here, and the dung came out. Now, literally, this is, this is euphemism. It's, it's, it's like, a, literally, it's like, and, and his groin came out. And so several different translators have tried to make sense of this. Like, okay, his bowels came out? Or did the sword go through and come out the back? Like, that's, and, and we're meant to let, we're left. Either way, and, and, and this is what I would tell you, like, there's, there's something pretty, pretty crazy going on here. 
And it's filthy. It's gross. But let me draw some conclusions from this in light of it. We learn something from Iguan. Even in the most funny possible way, it is a perilous matter to oppress and crush God's people. It is a perilous matter to abuse and crush his people. Jesus picks up on this, right? He says, look, if you, would, if you would cause any one of these little ones to stumble, right, sweet, nice, and gracious, merciful Jesus, what does he do? Throws a death threat like he's some sort of mobster. You're going to wish you had been, you, you're going to wish you had a stone tied around your neck and you were thrown in the ocean if you mess with some of my children and cause them to stumble. It is a perilous matter to oppress God's people. And here's the cool part. God will make his enemies the punchline of a joke. God will make his enemies the punchline of a joke. Think of it this way as we reflect on this story. God delights to deliver his people from their troubles such that they are even able to laugh after their sorrow and smile after their grief. They were living in the worst possible time, and yet, what, is, what, what, do we, what will you remember about the oppression that the Israelites fail, um, felt under Kushan, Rishathaim, and Eglon, right? What are you going to remember them? And you'll laugh, and you'll think, that's silly, that's bizarre. Psalm 30 says it this way, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. Oh, Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Now sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy, joy comes in the morning. Silly stories. And here's what I will tell you to summarize that. God's story of redemption always includes filth. He's just not thwarted by it. I'd add here that, thwart, that like filth often is an expression of love. I remember this. Um, I still see it outside my front, front door, but uh, like dogs are man's best friend, but who cleans up after who? And I remember when I, when I first, we got a dog, and I remember we lived in an urban area, and, and like you could get a ticket for not cleaning up after your dog, and so you buy these little plastic bags, and I'm, a, I'm an educated, dignified man, and I'm about to, with my own hand, pick up the filth of this puppy. But if you've ever done that, you know, especially for those of you who think like your dog's family, it's somehow not strange. Take it a little further. Some of you have cleaned up after a baby. And that's some filth. And yet, what? It, there's, some, there's something about like, yeah, of course I did. I love this baby. Some of you have cleaned up the filth of an ill or aging parent. You get it? It's not some idle detail. Love is often best expressed in absorbing and cleaning up the filth. And it's really cool that God isn't grossed out by us. 
not surprised by the filth. In fact, he knows that the filth must be dealt with. And look, this is just a powerful story of a man who you wouldn't have expected to be the hero. He was the minority, right? And we just sang it. We sing this all the time, right? It's, you know, and all you left-handed people probably hate this, thinking of this when the Bible talks about this, right? When Jesus, you know, sits down or stands at the right hand of the Father, and you left-handed people are like, what? You know, stop shaming me, right? Or, or if you're like, with a, the Lord outstretches his right arm. All it's saying is like the dominant hand. This is what most people do, right? And yet the subdominant, the unexpected, possibly even, if we read this literally, a person who might have just been injured on their right arm ends up being the hero. And Othniel gives this picture of strength. Ehud gives this picture of God's victory and weakness. And then there's one verse, 31. Did you catch it? Shamgar? He kills a bunch of people with a cattle prod. Don't miss that. You've got the picture of God's victory and strength, his victory and weakness, and his use of unlikely tools to get the job done. But notice, neither Othniel, nor Ehud, nor Shamgar could deliver these people from their propensity to sin. They did everything they could, made even the enemies of God a punchline of a joke. But don't miss this. Even though they were great and mighty heroes, they were unable to heal these people from their deepest problems. They weren't able to save them from their propensity to idolatry, rebellion, and unfaithfulness. Romans chapter 3 says that this, what then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, right? If you're born in the right family, does that win you something? I was raised in a Christian home. No, for we already charge that all both Jews and Greeks are what? Under sin. Notice that's a singular word, under sin, not sins. Why? Because sin isn't just a thing you do or don't do. Sin is a power. Sin is an oppressing force over God's people. And even though Othniel, and even, man, Ehud, I mean, he's my new favorite, right? I, props to the person who can get Shamgar or Ehud in the name of their next son, right? You'd probably wanted to make a, you'd want to make that a middle name and not a first name. But as heroic as they were, they could not deliver these people from their propensity to idolatry. Verse 10 says it this way. That is as it is written, there, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. And as awesome as these leaders were, they couldn't deliver God's people from their sin and their idolatry. And yet, don't miss this. God delights to use unexpected means to deliver his people. And you might say, well, we're not primitive idol worshipers like them. Are you sure? Your bondage may not be to Moabites or to a king somewhere, some fat king or foreign oppression. And maybe you're not hoping a sneaky left-handed swordsman like a spy will come in and save the day. But what do you trust in? What do you hope in? And don't miss the good news we're led to hear. 
there is one with greater strength than Othniel. There is one with power made visible and weakness even greater than Ehud. And there is one who uses unexpected tools like Shamgar. What is this great strength? What is this visible weakness? What is this unlikely tool? Friend, Jesus has triumphed over death, hell, sin, and the grave. And he has demonstrated strength over our enemies, crushed them. I feel like if it's biblical for me to say, like, knock the poop out of them. Like, I know, and you're, you want to blame me, and I'm like, that's, li- that's literally what God did. So the next time you hear someone, I don't know what word you use, when next time you hear that, I want you to be like, that's funny. That's what God did to Satan. And God has demonstrated strength over death, sin, hell, and the grave in Jesus. He has shown his ability to work through weakness. Friend, he has scars on his hands and his feet and his side. And the unlikely tool he uses to deliver his people, an old, rugged cross. And even while we were in the clutches of sin, God has raised up a Savior who will deliver us. He will demonstrate his strength. He will cause us to even boast in weakness, and he will use the most unlikely of people and things to accomplish his purpose. Now let's pray and thank him for this. God, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's beyond my imagination to come up with a story where we would laugh at the defeat of your enemies. And yet, like 1 Corinthians 15, we get to mock them and we say, death, where is your victory? Grave, hell, sin, what do you have to boast about now? So if there's some in this room, maybe they wouldn't call themselves Christians, but they've made their way into this room. I thank you so much for bringing them here. Might you even now begin to paint a vivid picture of what victory over our enemies will look like. Maybe for the rest of us, we're just guilty of forgetting. We've heard this good news, and we know that you've conquered the grave. We know that you overcome sin. We know that you've paid our debt, but we regularly hope and trust in more immediate things. Maybe for us today, would you remind us Would you remind us of the victory that you have accomplished over the grave in unlikely, unexpected ways with unpredictable kinds of means because you delight to do that. God, we know that as we look around our own lives, (laughs) if we're honest, we think that our own lives are the most unlikely and Probably not the best candidate for amazing, miraculous things to happen, but would you encourage us today and remind us that in these unlikely, unsung places, that's where you delight to work. You delight to show your love and care through filth. You're not grossed out by it. You're not thwarted by it, but instead you demonstrate your love and care right in the middle of it. Might that cause us a deep and lasting joy that we would experience hope and comfort anew. Remind us of this love you've demonstrated for us in Christ, that while we were under sin, 
you have come to bear the penalty and pay the price we could not pay so that we would enjoy the blessings we do not deserve. We love you for this and thank you for this in the strong name of Jesus, who's victorious even in weakness and unexpected situations. Amen.